0: last time while, while we were doing numbers the, the tape finished before I had. Uh, so perhaps ju- just for the sake of completeness it was literally the last the last two chapters and uh, in chapter 35 we, we were doing about these cities of refuge uh, which were to be established in the promised land. And um, or in fact, there were three established in the Promised Land, and there were three established just outside, in the uh, you know amongst the Transjordan tribes. You remember, and we were seeing that the reason for these cities they they'd been manned by the Levites, and it was partially to do with um, Israel's legal system. And it was that if, um, if 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 someone had killed somebody, um, I mean, you didn't have a police force, and the local city or the local town had to deal with any crimes and often it was a member of the family who would go out, you know, he was called the the Avenger of Blood, who would go out to avenge uh, the murderer if someone in the family had been murdered by them. But as a a safety uh, against miscarriages of justice, because after all, you might have a situation where someone had killed someone else, but it wasn't premeditated murder. It was a manslaughter situation, or maybe even a complete accident. Now, what happened was, Uh, Because if you ended up in that situation, you'd uh, have, you know, sort of like the avenger of blood from from that family after you to put you to death. The idea of the city of refuge was somewhere where you could flee to and you'd be given asylum. And what would happen was that the Levites would investigate and, uh, you know, they'd look into your case and if they were happy, that it was a question of accidental death, i.e. a manslaughter thing, rather than murder, then they would grant refuge to you and keep you safe. And no avenger of blood could come anywhere near someone in a city of refuge once the Levites had agreed to give them asylum. However, if the Levites, in their investigations, concluded that you had actually murdered somebody and it was a premeditated thing then in fact they would then hand you over to the avenger of blood or the kinsman redeemer as sometimes they were known as so the cities of refuge were there to be a place to flee to uh you know to make sure that there were no miscarriages of justice of of justice in the question of murder or manslaughter so that was the the idea there and uh, and then the last chapter Uh, Chapter 36 in Numbers um, dealt with various uh, questions about inheritance and uh, particularly um, how it could uh, be avoided that property might pass from members of one tribe to another. So the point is that if, uh, if someone died and they left their land, which belonged to that tribe, if they had no immediate family from the same tribe who could inherit, then it could have passed into belonging to someone from another tribe. And therefore, the tribes would eventually lose their identity. And so there were rules in the inheritance laws uh, to prevent property being transferred from one tribe to another. So so that, that, that just finishes off the bit that the tape missed last time. Right, so, so today we, we come on to Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy. And um, the name means the second law-giving um, or repetition of the law. I, or either of those translations will do. And uh, when we were doing Numbers last time, we saw that uh, the generation that came out of Egypt died in the wilderness because at the end of the day, only Joshua and Caleb got to uh, go into the Promised Land. So the whole generation, all the people except from Joshua and Caleb, all the people who came out of Egypt into the wilderness they all died during the 38-year period of the wilderness wanderings. And this was judgment on them because, as we saw last time, there was their chance to go into the Promised Land. God said, go for it. This was just a year into their journeys, And they said, no, and they wouldn't do it. And so they forfeited it. So they all died in the wilderness. And, uh, and so they had heard the law you know, at Mount Sinai, and Moses had read it to them, expounded it to them, and they'd received all the teaching. But now, at this end of the Pentateuch, we're on the eve of them going into the Promised Land. So now, no one who was alive when Moses expounded the law the first time, 38 years earlier, at Mount Sinai, all the people alive then are dead. So all the people who are alive at this point, they haven't heard it. And so they're about to go into um, into Jordan, and they're in the territory of Moab, just outside, literally a, a stone's throw away. And um, And so basically what happens now is that Moses, in effect, goes over the law again. What he had done for the people who came out of Egypt, they're all dead, He now does for the people who were alive at the time when they were about to go into the promised land. So, now by way of instructing them, you get a book which amounts to the second, um, you know, sort of um, applying of the law to the people of Israel. So, really, today we are going to be dealing with complete repetition, more or less, Uh, but we've got to do it, and I will, as usual, try and make it as fascinating as possible. Um, And so, basically, what we've got here, we're going to... The book is laid out in that Moses gives three discourses. So that is what this book records. Moses gives three discourses. It'll all been in a similar period of time, all right? Um, you know, and we'll see where each one starts and ends. And basically, what he does is that he's, he's applying... Israel's past history, he's looking over their past history from the time that they came out of Egypt and all the wondrous wilderness... Uh, the wandering wilderness is the wilderness wanderings, okay? He's looking over their past history, he's looking at the law as received on Sinai, not just the Ten Commandments but the whole caboodle, alright? And uh, what he's doing is he's taking that and, and he's, he's taking the principles out of it all, and he's applying it to the generation now on the eve of going into the promised land. And so, in effect, it's a recap. Moses is saying, right, this is what we've learned thus far. You know, look at our history. This is what God has taught us. Uh, here's the law, all the commandments. This is what we learn from it. And, in, you know, sort of in general, these are the principles that we need to be aware of as you're about to go into the promised land. Because, of course, Moses, uh, you know, knew by this time that he wasn't going to and that he would soon die. So, really, it's a recap of, 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 of much of what we've seen in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers. It's a recap for the um, sake of a generation of people who weren't alive when all that was happening. So let's, let's, let's dive straight in and, and, and go in at chapter 1. And, uh, and of course you might not be surprised to know that at chapter 1 you get the beginning of the first discourse. All right, And um, let's, let's actually read verse 2 because this is, this is very telling. This, this kind of set, sets the scene. And um, verse 2 of chapter 1. And, um, now let's, let's see, Oh, let's read verse 1 as well. These are the words Moses spoke to all Israel in the desert east of the Jordan, that is in the Arabah, opposite Suf, between Paran and Tophel, Laban, Hazroth and Dezahab. These are, you know, this is telling us the location. Um, it takes 11 days to go from Horeb to Kadesh Barnea by the Mount Seir road. Now, what that little bit of information gives us is quite simply this. An 11-day journey from Mount Sinai to where they are now had taken them 38 years. Where they are now, they'd have got to in 11 days. And indeed, they had got to. In numbers, we saw it. They got there. But because they blew it, they wouldn't go in. They then were destined to 38 more years of wandering in the wilderness. And, uh, you know, so, uh, I mean, it's, you know, um, that's what unbelief does. I mean, talk about taking the long way round. And, uh, you know, so it starts with that little, you know, just to give us the geography of this. Everything that's gone before, the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, all right, they were covering an area that they could have and should have done in 11 days. You know, so sometimes if we think, you know, I, I sometimes feel I'm dragging my feet a little bit in growing in the Lord. One place to look at is the whole area of unbelief. If we're dragging our feet, if we think we're growing especially slowly, now I'm not, I'm not now saying that you know, we should be in leaps and bounds because maturing believers takes years, but sometimes we can become aware that we're falling behind a bit and, and one area to look at is unbelief, because you know? if we're not believing the promises of God, we're going to fall behind. Anyway, what happens is that, that Moses, at this point, he starts discoursing and uh, you know, he reminds them how the Lord has commanded them, as a nation, to, to go in and to take the land. And he's saying, look, there's the promised land, there's the land of Canaan, and God has commanded us to go in and take it. Your forefathers had a bash thirty-eight years ago and they blew it because they didn't believe the Lord, but now you're going to do it. And he then explains to them how to go about uh, eventually establishing the leadership structures that they were going to need once they got in the land. Uh, you know, sort of very much to remember Jethro, Moses' father-in-law had advised him how to set up leadership structures and at this point Moses says, and when you go into the land, don't forget you're going to need leadership structures as well. So he, 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 he goes over all that and, um, and then he, he tells them the story of the sending of the spies, and he goes over this with them, look, we, we sent the spies in, and, uh, you know, they went into the land, and, and they saw how absolutely fantastic it was, but uh, they they came back saying, we didn't have a chance, you know, because there were giants there, and the people were fierce, and we were like grasshoppers, and, you know, they said, no, we we can't do it, and so Moses is going over this for them, and saying, you know, this is, this is how it was that, that that your parents are now dead, this is how... They blew it, and, and, and he explains to them how, how God, you know, sort of judged them, and, uh, you know, the, the story of how they changed their minds after God had judged them. They said, oh, well, we'll go in after all. This was after God said, well, don't, it's too late. You remember, they went in and they got marmalised and came out again, and, and you know, and Moses, in this chapter, he's going over all this history uh, for the benefit of the, the people there. And uh, then in chapter 2, he, he carries on recapping various details um, about their 38 years of their wanderings. And, um, and at that point, he, he then tells them the story of uh, how they defeated the Amorites uh, when the Amorites attacked them, uh, led by King Zion. Uh, then in chapter 3, he moves on to the uh, defeat of uh, King Og of Bashan and how the Bashanites came to bash them up. I don't know whether that's how they got their name, but it could be. And so he, he tells them that story, how the Lord delivered them from that. And uh, then, then he, he tells them all about the, um, the agreement that he'd struck with what were to become known as the Transjordan tribes. Uh, you'll remember that Reuben, Gad, and half Manasseh, because it was half of the tribe of Manasseh, Uh, they decided that this particular area where they're camped at the moment was so nice that they wanted to stay there. And they thought, you know, rather than us go into the Promised Land, it's so good here, can we make make our home here? And you'll remember the agreement that Moses struck with them, that uh, it was okay for them to do that, but only on the condition that they went in, that their menfolk fought in the army, in the Promised Land, and that they would only return and settle in the Transjordan once the rest of the tribes had actually taken the land. And so Moses goes over this, explaining it all to the people so that they uh, were aware of what was going to happen afterwards. And uh, then he, he, he tells them how God had forbidden him to go into the land. You remember, he blew it, he shouted at them, he lost his temper, he called them rebels and sinners and that, and misrepresented God. And so, obviously, if, if you're going to be a leader, you're judged with greater strictness. That, uh, you know, God said, right, okay, Moses, now you've, you've blown it as well, you're not going in either. And, um, you know, so Moses tells them that, uh, how that happened, and uh, explained to them how Joshua had been anointed as his leader so that they would know that, once Moses died, that Joshua would step into his shoes and carry on where he left off. Now, in chapter 4, he exhorts them to obey the law, and, and, and he really goes into it, reminding them of how vital it is, at all points, that they live in obedience to what the Lord had shown them. And he warns them specifically of what was to be their greatest danger you know, at all times, and it was going to be idolatry. And uh, as they were going into Canaan, the, the, the nations in there that they had to kind of clear out had loads and loads of idolatry going, and the great risk was always going to be that Israel would become contaminated with their idols. Not that they would stop believing in the Lord, but that they would end up believing in the Lord and these other gods as well. The problem with idolatry wasn't a complete turning their backs on the Lord but that the Lord became one of many gods that they would worship. And so Moses really, you know, explains to them the dangers of that. And of course, in the wilderness, they weren't exposed to any idols at all in the wilderness because they were the only nation there. And yet, do you remember, they made the golden calf. So this was always going to be the great danger. Now, if Israel ended up in idolatry in the wilderness, where there was no one to tempt them into idolatry, how much more was the, the danger of that temptation going to be when they were about to go into a land that was filled with idolatry? And so Moses really kind of, you know, sort of like pushes that, that home to them. And uh, this, this, this chapter really is the keynote of this whole book. And it, it's the heart of what Moses is seeking to communicate to that generation of people who were going to go into the land. And the whole push behind it was that the Lord is God, and that there is no other God beside Him. And notice that. We saw that in the Ten Commandments. It's not just a question of that there is no other God other than the Lord, but that there's no other God beside Him. And the danger of idolatry, I repeat, wasn't that they would stop believing in the Lord and and, and blow Him it would be that they'd have idols beside him. That they'd end up giving him equal place in their lives to these idols and false gods. And of course, for us, at the end of the day, the real danger, I would say, for the average Christian isn't falling away and completely going back to the non-Christian life. I mean, some believers do. I mean, I've known people who now are indistinguishable from non-Christians. And yet, I know that once they were genuinely following the Lord, they have totally and utterly fallen away. They're completely backslidden, they're completely apostate. Now, that happens to some, but that isn't the danger that your average Christian, i.e. you and I, face, forsaking the Lord completely. The danger we face is having the world and all these other things on the same level as the Lord. you see? That's the danger of idolatry. And that is why for us, I mean, we're hardly going to be getting into Baal worship. I mean, that doesn't tend to happen in the 20th century in Essex, does it? But the point is, the danger in the New Testament is that Paul, all the time, he equates greed and idolatry. You'll find that if you read through Paul. When he talks about greed, he says that is idolatry. Because you might not be bowing down to a totem pole or something. But, you know, for any of us, you know, sort of like a car, a house, you name it, anything in our lives, our hobbies, anything, our work, our jobs, any of these things, legitimate though they are in themselves, can end up beside the Lord our God and become idols, you know, so that God is sharing pole position in our lives with various other things you know that 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 uh, you know are merely things that he gives us rather than things that are God himself and so that's that's the push here and you know in in chapter 4 what moses is saying the lord is god there is no one else beside him and because he is the one true god he is due our utter loyalty and our utter obedience and that is what moses really pushes home there, and uh, and then, he, he, he after that, he ends this first discourse with, um, you know, sort of doing a bit on the Cities of Refuge that, that, that I mentioned a few minutes ago. Right, now now in Chapter 5, you get the second discourse. And, uh, you know, because these, these discourses, they, they build on each other. So there's been a bit of a break, maybe of a few days, I don't know how long. And so now the people are gathered back together again, and Moses carries on with his, his teaching. And uh, here in, in chapter 5, he starts his second discourse simply by restating the Ten Commandments. And so, Deuteronomy chapter 5 is really the equivalent of Exodus chapter 20, and Moses restates what the Ten Commandments were. And of course, that was the basis of it all, because when you've got the Ten Commandments, you, you have summed up what it means to, to, to truly follow the Lord. know to put him first to bow down before him as being the one true god and to live in a way that pleases him and then in in chapter six he starts applying it to them and uh, really in chapter six you have an exposition of the first law and the law number one you know about having no other gods before him and uh, it's in this chapter that we get, you know, sort of like, you know, the very famous verse of Scripture, where Moses sums it up like this, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Now, that's not quoting the first commandment, but that's what it boils down to. That's what it actually means. And that is why Jesus, summed up the commandments partially by quoting that verse, because that's what it boils down to. And so Moses is saying, look, this is in effect what it is. You've got the commandment, I can quote that to you, but this is what it means. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength. And, um, and of course, you remember back in Leviticus 19, and I hope you do remember back in Leviticus 19, uh, when when God was restating the commandments to Moses, um, in verse 18 there, you remember, God said to Moses, love your neighbor as yourself. So when God decided to restate the Ten Commandments to Moses, God summed it up with, love your neighbor as yourself. When Moses restates the Ten Commandments to Israel, he sums them up, By saying, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, your strength, blah, blah, blah. And when Jesus, in the Gospels, summed up the entire law, he put the two together. You shall love the Lord your God with all your blah, 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 and love your neighbour as yourself. Now, that comes together as a package. And it's quite simple. You shall love the Lord your God. There's the first two or three commandments that relate purely to him. But when you come on to the rest of the commandments, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, blah, 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 that's for the benefit of other people. And what you've got in the Ten Commandments is quite simply that, if you love God, i.e. the first batch of commandments, that will be shown through your obedience to the rest of the commandments. Because if you love God, you're going to love your neighbour. If you love God, you will not swipe your neighbour's wife. If you love God, you will not steal from your neighbour. If you love God, you won't tell a lie, because that's going to hurt somebody else. I.e., if you love God, you'll love your brother. If you love God, you'll love your neighbour. And indeed, the extent to which we can say how much do I love God is precisely how much do I love other people. Because the principle that John expounds in his first letter is quite simply, how can you say you love God who you haven't seen if you haven't loved your brother who you have seen? It's as simple as that, and you get it here in this, you know, restating of the law. Loving God with your whole heart, but that boils down to loving your neighbour with your whole heart as well. And that, ultimately, is what the life of holiness is. The life of holiness is the life of self-giving love. Loving God, and therefore loving your neighbour. Because the fact that you love yourself is a foregone conclusion, all right? Mm-hmm. And that is why it's got to be a little less loving ourselves to make room for loving God and for other people. That's why this, this thing that you hear in so many Christian circles today, this thing about, oh, you've got to learn to love yourself. A load of rubbish is one thing we never have to learn. Mm-hmm. What we have to learn is how to put ourselves last and to love God and to love our neighbour. And, uh, you know, so therefore we have Moses summing up the law. And you can see why this book is called Deuteronomy. It is a second, you know, a repetition of the law, a second or, or a restatement of the law, as we saw in Exodus. Right, now in chapter 7 he, he turns their attention to uh, the, the instructions that God had given them, that they were to um, drive out and completely destroy the Canaanites. Uh, because, I mean, whereas the land was theirs, you know, God had given it to them as a gift. Nevertheless, it was inhabited by the Canaanites, and uh, and therefore, because of the evil of the Canaanites, Israel was to be the means of God's judgment on the Canaanites, and so therefore, Israel is commanded that commanded that as they go into the promised land, they were to completely drive out and destroy the nations that were already there. And uh, the instructions were that there were to be no marriages with them, they weren't to marry, Uh, there were to be no compromises of any kind whatsoever. I mean, obviously, if you had, uh, like, you know, sort of Canaanites who, as it were, you know, sort of like converted to Judaism and became believers, that, that was okay. You know, I mean, it's like, for instance, when we come on to do Joshua next time, we'll see how Rahab, the harlot, became a believer. And uh, she was a Canaanite woman in Jericho, but because she became a believer, it was okay to marry her. And indeed, she ended up in Jesus' genealogy. She was actually, you know, um, a forebear of Jesus himself. But the point was that they weren't to intermarry with the Canaanites or have any kind of compromise, compromise or fraternizing with them in any way at all. The reason being that were they to do that, then the evil of the Canaanite nations would simply rub off onto them. It was as simple as that. And of course, as we keep going with this Bible survey, we're going to see that the future history of Israel from this point was exactly that. The failure to drive out the Canaanites completely and the constant problem of Israel becoming contaminated by the evil and the idolatry and the occultism and, and, and the sin of the Canaanite nations, but, uh, you know, but, but here Moses is, is, is banging home to them the fact that when you go in there you must destroy these nations before you. No marriages, no compromising, no fraternising. And then he um, assures them that, that, that God had promised that they would know complete victory in this venture if only they remain faithful to the Lord. And the reason that Israel ended up with partial victory in Canaan was because they were partially faithful to the Lord. But the other side of that is the reason that they partially lost Canaan was that they were partially unfaithful to the Lord. They didn't do the job properly, and it was because they didn't remain completely faithful to the Lord. But what um, Moses is saying to them here is, look, to the extent that you're faithful to the Lord, to that extent, you're no complete victory as you march into Canaan. And then in chapter 8, he, he kind of looks back over their 38 years of wanderings. And he explains to them the way that, <clears throat> through that time, God was testing them. And, uh, you know, he uses the, the language of, of, of testing and humbling. And he says to them, you know, that, that, that through that time the Lord tested you and humbled you, um, you know, to, to, to find out, to know what was in your heart. Now, I mean, the point is that obviously God wasn't testing them to find out what was in their heart because he didn't know. He was testing them to show them what was really in their heart. And, uh, and, and, and the main thing that God wanted them to learn, and Moses now says this to them, was that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So this is where that verse that gets quoted in the New Testament comes from. This is how Moses is explaining this is why you were tested and humbled in the way you were in the wilderness. It was so that you would learn that any self-reliance is, is going to be absolute just disaster for you and folly, and that what you had to learn is that you don't live by bread alone, either natural, the natural life, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Our dependence, ultimately, is on Him. And um, he, he explains to them that, The manna kept coming, and at this point still is, they're still eating the manna. He's saying God provided for you. Every morning the manna was there and you went out to gather it, no problem at all. Uh, He said your clothes didn't wear out. And, uh, you know, that's something we don't often think of, but but not one thread of clothing on one Israelite wore out while they were in the wilderness. You know, the, the, the shoes on their feet didn't wear out. All that walking they did, God completely sustained them in every way. And it says that their feet didn't swell. You know, sort of like, you know, and I mean, that's a kind of a hazard when you're doing as much walking as they were doing. God provided for them in every way, and looked after them completely. And, uh, you know, and yet in the light of that, do you remember, we saw that, what were they? They were moan, groan, groan, all the time. Nothing was ever right. Now, that, that's the truth of our hearts, you know, and, and, and it's like the, the, more, the more the Lord does for us, the more the sinful nature moans against him, you know, I mean, it, it just seems to be the way. And um, and, and he, he reminds them, at this point as well, that given that the land that they were about to go into was so wonderful, and I mean, like, you know, they were going to stop eating manna soon, and they were going to eat of the produce of the land. You know, and you remember, you know, when the spies went into the land, you know, I mean, sort they, of, they pick a bunch of grapes, and uh, this bunch of grapes, two men would bring it back on a pole on their shoulders one bunch of grapes weighed so much that one man couldn't carry it on their own. So they were about to swap manna, which was all very well, nice stuff, but, you know, just kind of like barely kept, you know, just kept you going. They were about to swap the wilderness for this absolute paradise that they were going into. And, uh, and what Moses says... Is that the great danger now that you've got to be aware of, is that when you do get in there, when you actually realise how fantastic it is, you've got to make sure that your sheer satisfaction with it doesn't make you forget the Lord. And there's a warning here, that coming prosperity could end up making them unfaithful i.e., because they could end up so taken with their newly acquired prosperity that they're now finding their security and delight in the things God has given them, and they forget the Lord. And there's a very important principle there about prosperity. And it's quite simply this. Nowhere does the Bible say it's wrong to prosper. And indeed, Moses isn't saying, look, you know, God's going to make you paupers in the land so the prosperity doesn't take you away. No, he said God is going to prosper you in the land. That's one of his promises. But when that prosperity comes, make sure it doesn't take you away from the Lord. So what we've got is that when the Lord prospers us, it can have two effects on us. It can be a blessing to us that we can share with others. The more you've got, the more you can pass on to other people. Give and it shall be given. It can be a great blessing, alright? Or it can become the weeds that strangle the seed. Do you remember Jesus' teaching in the parable of the sower? The seed that, that grew up and it was choked by the weeds, and Jesus said that that, the weeds, were the cares of the world and delight in riches. It's not saying there's anything wrong with riches themselves and prosperity, but it can become a kind of a weed that strangles. And here Moses is saying, when you get into the land, don't end up so taken up with the blessings that God has given you there that you end up actually forgetting the Lord. And, of course, as we go through, you know, the rest of this survey and see Israel's history in the land, what was one of the things that happened to them? They ended up so taken up with their newly acquired prosperity, they forgot the Lord. Uh, And that's a warning here that Moses gives them, they didn't take it to heart. We've got to make sure that um, we, we do. And uh, so the warning there about a prosperity, making you unfaithful to the Lord. And uh, then in chapter 9, he continues to, to warn them of, of all the dangers that, that they're facing in the light of their past rebellion against the Lord. So, so now he makes them look back at how rebellious and unfaithful they've been thus far. And, um, and, and Moses tells them here Um, You know, remember that everything that Moses is passing on from here is what God has told Moses. I mean, all this is, you know, straight from the Lord. And uh, and Moses reminds them that, that, that God's choice of them as his people, why Israel was chosen as a nation, wasn't because of any righteousness of their own. That wasn't why God chose them. In fact, Moses said that, in actual fact, you've only got, well, we've only got to look back over our short history as a nation, and we can actually see that we're more wicked than the other nations, not less wicked. So he says, don't think that you're being blessed like this, that God chose you because you're righteous. He didn't. You see, you're more wicked, (laughs) actually, than most of the nations that we've encountered so far. Because when Israel rebelled, it was against such incredible light. You know, such presence of of the Lord with them. And, uh, you know, but Moses says, look, the Canaanites are losing the land, not because of your righteousness, but because of their wickedness. You know, so you are the means of God judging them. But don't don't think it's because you're special, because you're absolutely not. And again, this is the same with us, isn't it? You know, I mean, there's nothing... I mean, God loves each one of us absolutely to bits. But the reason he chose us isn't because we're righteous. He chose us precisely because we're so sinful and so desperately in need of salvation. And, and Moses reminds Israel um, of this principle um, in regards to themselves, and uh, he, he reminds them, um, specifically, of the episode with the golden calf. Do you remember when, when Moses was up in, in, in Sinai, like, getting the commandments and the law, you know, and the covenant being struck between God and Israel, alright, and, uh, and, and, and Moses comes down from the mountain, only to discover that in the meantime, since he's been up there, he comes down with the two tablets of stone with the Ten Commandments on, he comes down from the mountain only to discover that while he's been up there receiving the law, Israel's decided to, to make a golden calf and are having a drunken orgy, an immoral drunken orgy, around this golden calf worshipping it. And not only that Aaron, his brother, who was Israel's newly appointed high priest, was the master of ceremonies. That was the truth about Israel as a nation. And, uh, you know, and I assure you that, 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 that you don't have to look back far on any of your lives, I don't, to see equivalent incidents in my life, in the light of everything that God has done for me, the way I've often been since. And, and Moses reminds them of this. And the point was that Moses, he comes down, he sees what they're doing, and he smashes the stones, the tablets of stone with the law on. And the point was that, you know, with the law is that Israel had broken it before God had finished giving it. That was the truth of Israel, and that is the truth of us as well. And so Moses is really making sure, because it would have been a bit easy for this generation of people to kind of be getting a little bit big for their boots, because after all, this wasn't them, it was their forefathers, it was their parents who did all that. What Moses is saying, you're no different to your parents, you mustn't think you are, you're not. You know, literally there but for the grace of God go any of us, that is literally the truth, and so Moses is really making sure that they understand, you know, and that they, they, they keep in their place. And, and he chucks out one or two other instances as well, you know, especially chosen to illustrate their sinfulness and rebellion. And um, then, then in chapter 10, um, he, he explains to them how the, the tablets of stone, having been broken, you know, when he came down from the mountain, um, that, that eventually the Lord replaced them, you know, and the Lord wrote them out again, you see. And, and I mean, that's good, because as many second chances as you need you get with the Lord. The fact that Moses smashed them, Israel had blown it. They hadn't actually blown it, because you get all the second chances that you need, don't you? And, and, and so Moses tells them how God wrote out two fresh tablets of stone with the, um, the commandments on and that they were, um, you know, placed in the Ark of the Covenant. And then he explains to them how the tribe of Levi were set apart and that they were the priestly tribe who were going to carry the Ark, etc, etc. He goes over all that with them. And uh, then, in chapter 11, he, he, he goes on to um, he restates all the blessings and the cursings. So, you know, God, um, you know at the giving of the law, has said, if, if you obey the law, these are the blessings you're going to get. But if you're unfaithful to me, these are the cursings. And so, um, you know, Moses goes over all this, explains it all to the people. And he, he instructs them that when they actually got into the land, that they would find two mountains. One called Mount Gerizim, and the other called Mount Ebal. And what they were to do, once they were established in the land, and when we come onto the Book of Joshua, we'll see when they actually did this, um, that they were to sort of like, you know, send, send one person up Mount Gerizim, and they were to read out all the blessings. And someone else was to go out Mount up Mount Ebal, and they were to read out all the cursings. And so these two mountains, you know, where they went into the land, would stand as a you know a living sermon. So that what Moses is saying to them here, they were actually going to have two mountains, you know, sort of you know dominating the land as it were, which would speak to them forever of this thing that Moses is saying here, you know, blessings of obedience, but the cursing of rebellion, etc., etc. And uh, then, in, in chapter 12, he, he, he outlines, um, you know, sort of more on the, the conditions of, you know, of getting the blessings in the Promised Land. And, um, you know, he re-emphasises to them the importance of uh, staying away from any kind of a idolatry. Um, and he, he kind of explains to them that they'd be given, even given certain places in which to worship so that God would even tell them what sort of worship to be doing um, in, in what particular places. And the reason they, they were given such precise instructions for worship was again to make sure that they knew exactly how God wanted it to be done and to avoid the slipping over you know, into to, to any kind of idolatry. Then in chapter 13 he moves on to the subject of false prophets and false prophecies. And, um, you know, he tells them that false prophets will be raised up amongst them, which was, again, a perennial problem. And, um, And what he's saying here is that some of them would even work miracles. But he's saying that the fact that they worked miracles shouldn't necessarily make you conclude that they're of God. So what Moses is saying here, that when it comes to prophets working miracles, the test is never merely supernatural power. So even in the Old Testament, you didn't have this thing that, that sadly, a lot of Christians labour under this illusion, that the mere fact that a miracle accompanies a teaching means that the teaching is correct. doesn't mean that at all. And, uh, you know, because, I mean, obviously, Satan can counterfeit miracles. And uh, the test that he gives them is whether or not that prophet and his prophecy ends up leading them away from the Lord into idolatry. So even then, the test was... Does this prophecy and does this prophet and his life, regardless of miracles, forget the miracles, forget any power they may have, the test is how does it square up to the law of God? How does it square up to what God has revealed in his word? And, of course, that remains the test of prophecy to this day, doesn't it? Of course it does. And uh, then he outlines that, um, that there was to be a death penalty for idolatry and uh, be it for um, individuals... Or, or entire families, or whole towns, and um, you know, I mean, there are occasions in in Israel's subsequent history when when certain towns had to get together, and they literally had to go and destroy another town that was into completely unrepentant idolatry. And so the point is, there you had individual and corporate responsibility when it came to idolatry, and this was how how strong God was going to be on idolatry. But remember, it may sound tough, some of the things that they had the death penalty for, but you've got to remember that in the light of Israel being God's people and God being their king, that the idolatry and all the immorality and stuff like that, because it introduced a foreign power, i.e. the kingdom of Satan, it was treason. It was treason. And it's even today on our law books, treason is still a capital offence. I mean, you you know, obviously no one ever gets put to death, for treason, but it is interesting that treason, even in this country, at this particular time, is still a capital offence. And that was the thing about idolatry, it was literally treason, because it enabled the enemy to have a fifth column within the nation, so that he could eventually take them over. Because remember, all the time Satan was trying to destroy Israel, because he knew that Messiah and the Saviour of the world was going to be an Israelite. So therefore Satan was all the time trying to destroy the the nation. Right, chapter 14. He lists out um, clean and unclean animals for purposes of sacrifices, and also he begins to outline instructions on tithing, which, um, as you are aware of, was um, Israel's tax system. In chapter 15, he goes on to explain what was known as Israel's sabbatical year. Now, every Sabbath, you know, it's like seven. Um, Every seventh year was a sabbatical year. And it was a special year. Um, for instance, all debts were cancelled in this sabbatical year. So if you, if you owed money, you, you had to last out until the sabbatical year. Um, and part of it was a, a special exhortation of generosity towards the poor in this sabbatical year. Um, also, slaves would be set free. Now you've got to understand that slavery in Israel wasn't like you know I mean like you know slavery we tend to think of roots don't we and and what the the British Empire did did to the blacks Well, I mean it wasn't like that at all uh, you could sell yourself into slavery to raise money you know like mortgaging yourself um, and uh, you know so if your family was in debt and you know or something like that or you needed money you'd had a bad year with the harvest or something like that, you could sell yourself into slavery and your family would be paid. You'd be looked after by the family you're a slave to, but the money that you got would, you know, kind of, uh, you know, go to your family. And, um, And on the sabbatic year, slaves were set free. However, a slave... Even on a sabbatic year, had the option to remain with that family because they were more. You know, you've got to think of it more like upstairs, downstairs. You know, like the slaves were part of the family, and uh, you know, often you you get a situation where maybe um, you know a son, um, you know, sort of maybe not not that old. You know, like you know, so maybe his dad died and he had to look after his mum or whatever, and so he'd sell himself into slavery. But very often they'd end up being virtually taken into the home of the people that they're a slave to, and often they might fall in love with a daughter or, or something like that, you know, and become like a son in that family themselves. And so what happened was, when the sabbatic year came uh, for the freeing of the slaves, the slaves who wanted to receive their freedom could, and they walked free, but any who wanted to remain in the family, um, what, what they did is they had their ear pierced, and it was the sign that they, they so loved being a slave in this family that they wanted to stay. And what they were saying is, being adopted, if you like, into this family as a slave is better than the freedom that I'd have outside of this family. And uh, there's that chorus, isn't there, about, you know, pierce my ear, O Lord my God. And of course, it's a picture here that, that, that when you become a Christian, you're a slave to Jesus. You're a slave to Father. Of course you are. But the point is, being in slavery, because we're bound by the new covenant, Being in slavery to the Lord is far better than the freedom we had when we were non-Christians. So the point is, to be in slavery to God is a greater freedom than the freedom we had when we were still in sin and you know so the idea that our ears are pierced and and also we're slaves but who are taken into the family and adopted as sons which is what's happened to us so you've got all that you know sort of like imagery there in regards to slavery it was very different um in in israel and and then also in this uh chapter on the sabbatical year that you you had a special setting apart to the lord of all the firstborn of animals etc etc and of course that all goes back to you know like in the passover the firstborn was all committed to the lord because it was the firstborn who was spared because of the angel you know sort of like passing over where the angel saw the blood blah 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 so you've got all that right in chapter 16 he outlines the feasts of passover the feast of weeks or harvest or tab or, or pentecost that had three names and then the feast of tabernacles we saw them when we did leviticus and he, he, he goes over it there um then he, he deals with uh, the fact that when they're in the land they had to appoint judges in every town um, you know, to ensure justice, because social justice was a very big theme. So judges had to be appointed everywhere they went, and uh, then you get a bit more, you know, on idolatry and particular warning against the Asherah poles. These were like totem poles that the, um, you know, that the Canaanites used, and uh, also the erecting of sacred stones for altars. Um, you know, like often, you know, some of these people, they, they'd have special altars as it were, but the the, the stones were considered to be empowered, and they were... That's why sometimes, when you're reading through Israel's history, you'll sort of read that they set up altars here and there, and then the Lord judges them. And you think, well, I mean, they're setting up altars, why is the Lord judging them? It's because they're setting up the wrong sort of altars. They're not setting up altars to the Lord. They're setting up these these idolatrous ones, so you get warnings about that. Uh, Chapter 17... Um, he, he warns them against using imperfect animals in sacrifices. We saw that in Leviticus, the way that physical perfection represented holiness. Um, a specific instruction that star worshippers, people who worship the sun, moon and stars, were to be put to death because um, that was particularly big in Canaan, you know, the worship of the stars. Not, not astrology per se, um, you know, this is the actual worship of the stars, but astrology was a definite problem in Canaan and, and, and was certainly idolatrous. Um, then he outlines, um, and this is on the judicial system, that uh, where you had capital offences, that someone was to only be put to death if they were convicted on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So, no one could ever end up convicted of a crime or a capital offence on the evidence of just one witness. And, of course, that you know, prevented a lot of situations where you just had one person's word against another. And then the, the law that, um, that if someone had been convicted and was to be stoned to death, then the witnesses on whose testimony the person had been convicted had to throw the first rocks. With, with stoning to death, don't think, you know, like, you know, on a beach and getting a few pebbles. It wasn't. This, this was rocks. You know, this was to kill someone. And so the witnesses on whose testimony someone had been convicted, they had to initiate the actual execution. And, um, you know, and of course that's, uh, that, that was a good safeguard. It meant that you weren't going to stitch someone up lightly. You, see? you couldn't use their judicial system to do your murder for you. If they were put to death on your perjured testimony, you were the one who had to actually throw the stones at them. So that, that was a safeguard. Um, you know, that the witnesses were the executioners as well. Um, then, then Moses deals with the fact that, that, that when court cases come up that are too difficult for local civil courts to deal with, because you might have your little village judge or, you know, the elders and that, and a case might come up that they honestly think, oh, no, this is too much for us, can't, you know, can't work it out, blah blah blah. Then. What was to happen then is that it would be taken to the Levites in the area, the priests, and they would then refer it to higher courts and to people who were more expert than, maybe, the local civil courts. Um, Then he prophesied that, eventually, Israel would want a king. Now, Now, this will feature a lot more later on as we go through the Bible, but here's a prophecy that, eventually, Israel would want a king. Because, of course, the point is God was their king. They were a theocracy. God was their king. God spoke to them directly. But here Moses says, one day you're going to want a king. And he reminds them that when they do, they must only choose a man of God's appointing. If they were ever get the wrong one, they were going to be in trouble. And they very often did get the wrong one, and they were very often were in trouble um, as a result of it. And uh, that, that, that when, when kings eventually came on the scene, um, that the kings were specifically forbidden not to oppress the people. So it really was a righteous kingship. Um, you know, kingship in Israel was to be totally different from the surrounding nations. The king was not to be a despot. He was not to be, like, a dictator. And, uh, and there's a warning here that any future kings weren't to be led astray by wanting many wives or by the accumulation of wealth. And uh, a, it was specifically those two things that eventually topped Solomon. Uh, you know, so there's a warning. And also, when a king commenced his reign, <laughs> after he'd been crowned, the first thing the king had to do was he had to write out a copy of the entire law, which, which came to be the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He had to write the whole lot out. So his first act as king was to vanish somewhere, get plenty of papyrus, (laughs) and, and quilled pens, and loads of ink, and he had to write the whole lot out, word for word. And also that he was not to consider himself better than the people. So the point is that when Israel eventually had kings, the first act of a reigning king wasn't to rule over the people, it was to write out the entire law to remind him that he was under the authority of God, the same as everyone else in Israel was. So that's, that, that, that's the, the rules for, for kings there. Uh, in chapter 18, he goes into all the Levites, you know, the priests and the priestly assistants, and uh, how because they weren't going to have any land of their own, that they were to live off of the offerings um, of the rest of Israel. <coughs> And uh, here he specifically covers animal sacrifice. Because a lot of the sacrifices, they bring, you know, sort of like their beast along, whatever it was, a cow or whatever. And a lot of the sacrifices, like, you know, the, the Levite would slit its throat and bleed it, and that was the sacrifice over. The Levite then, then took it home to his family and he ate it because he didn't have any land on which he could rear cattle. So, you know, again, the principle that because the Levites were, I suppose what we might call full-time for the Lord, not very good phrase, but that kind of thing, you know, that was their full-time job, they were to be supported by the people they were leading precisely because they had no means to earn money themselves because their job was working full-time, you know, in leadership in the temple, blah, blah, blah. They had no means of income. So, the principle there that, you know, kind of the, uh, you know, the servant is worthy of his hire, that. And uh, also, that Levites who had a travelling ministry, because some of them travelled, you know, they travelled around like itinerant you know, preachers, that they were to be supported by whatever town they happened to be in at the particular time. Then, a warning, and this may surprise you, but it happened again and again in Israel's history, a specific warning against child sacrifice. You might be amazed to think that Moses warns them specifically against human and child sacrifice, but there were many times when Israel did precisely that. And this was the kind of occult practices that were going on in Canaan. You know, I mean, sort of, don't, don't think it was just, you know, like these, these Canaanites, kind of, on a Saturday night, sitting around a Ouija ball with a couple of pints and a packet of fags. <laughs> it wasn't like that. It, 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 it was really, they were into child sacrifice. They were into every abomination under the sun. And so Moses here warns Israel that they're not to get contaminated by it. As we go on through it, we'll see that they were contaminated by it. And Israel did get into child sacrifice, even at times cannibalism. And... um then, Moses prophesies of the eventual coming of another prophet who was going to be like him, but that who would speak the very words of God. And that is obviously a prophecy of the coming Messiah, of Jesus. I mean, to this day, Israel is awaiting this, this prophet who's, who's going to be the second Moses. You know, Moses was considered the prophet par excellence in the Old Testament. As far as prophets go, Moses was it. But Moses here prophesies that someone was going to come along who was going to be like him, but would supersede him, speak the very words of God. Not just be a channel for God to speak here and there like Moses was, but this this coming prophet would speak the very words of God. Whatever he said is going to be the word of God. So a prophecy there of the coming Messiah. And um, and then he, he ends off there with a principle again about predictive prophecy, and that if a prophet prophesies that something's going to happen, if it doesn't happen, then by definition, it's a false prophecy. Which may seem obvious to you and I, but believe you me, I have known Christians who have prophesied this, that, and the other, and what they prophesied hasn't come to pass. And so do they then acknowledge it's a false prophecy? Well, then, say, well, God changed his mind, or Satan hindered it, or something like that, blah blah blah. But here, quite simply, if there's a prophecy, and, you know, a kind of an unqualified prophecy, thus says the Lord, this is going to happen. Well, if it doesn't happen, it's not a prophecy. So, little test there to add to the other test for false prophecy. He's already um, covered with them. Uh, Then in chapter 19, he goes over the rules for the cities of refuge. Now, I I did this, didn't I, right at the beginning, because that's where we were uh, in Numbers last time when the tape clicked off, so I I won't go into that. Um, then, Then a commandment... Uh, that they weren't to move their neighbour's boundary stone. And the thing about not removing a neighbour's boundary stone was um, theft of private property. I, the idea being that, in, you know, sort of they had boundary stones, you know, which, which, you know, the edge of their property. So, I mean, the point is if someone came along and sort of like moved it half a mile over, they've increased their land by by a couple of square miles, but having nicked a couple of square miles, you know, so, so that's theft of private property. And, of course, private property was a very important principle um, in Israel because it, it, it was how the tribes kept um, their identity. They could not lose their private property, because it always reverted back to them. Everyone had, a, you know the same kind of bite of the cherry. You could do what you wanted with your property, you could make it work for you or you could leave it to rack and ruin, but at the end of the day, that private property could never pass away from you. And um, in regards to immigration policy, and Israel's immigration policy was very, very good, um, the principle there is that they were to always welcome what they called the alien and the sojourner. The reason being that they were aliens, they dwelt in Egypt. They didn't belong in Egypt, but for 400 years they were in Egypt. And so the principle was that Israel was always to be completely welcoming to anyone from other nations who wanted to come and live in Israel. A completely open-door policy. But the one thing was that immigrants could not have private property. They couldn't own land. So the point is they received all the rights that every other Israelite would under the law. They were to be welcomed, honoured. There was to be no prejudice in Israel at all, but immigrants couldn't own private property. The reason being, again, to protect Israel, because if you'd had enough immigrants, they could actually end up owning all the property, and if enough Jews lost their land, well, I mean, they'd lose their nationhood, and so it was there to protect their identity in the land there. Then you get the principle that, um, this is back to the judiciary, Witnesses in a trial, all right, on whose testimony someone was punished, uh, be it they got a flogging or be it they got put to death. If you were found to have been a false witness, or if if you were discovered to have perjured yourself, then you received whatever punishment the person you lied about either got or would have got if you hadn't been found out. So if you perjured yourself in a capital trial, you were put to death. If you perjured yourself in a trial that would result in the guilty party being flogged, you got that flogging. So, so, again, perjury was linked, not to a separate crime with a punishment, but perjury was linked to whatever the punishment was for the crime that you were perjuring yourself about. So, a good, good kind of deterrent there for people being false witnesses. And again, you know, thou shalt not bear false witness, the truth. Tremendously important to God. Especially as false-witnessing, it damages other people. And if you love the Lord your God, you'll love your brother. So you won't want to damage him, so you won't lie. Simple as that. So there you've got that, that principle there. And, um, and it's here that you get the principle of an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. It's explained here, in chapter 19. Now, what, what lay behind this? I, you know, if someone, if someone pokes your eye out, you could go and poke their eye out, alright? Uh, If someone knocked your front tooth out, you could go and knock their front tooth out. You know, I mean, literally, you could go to them, you get people to hold them down, you could take a chisel to the tooth that they'd knocked out of your mouth. Now, this, this, this has been very misunderstood, and it was at the time of Jesus. Jesus had to reinterpret it for people. It wasn't there for vengeance. It wasn't there for vengeance. It didn't mean that if someone blacked your eye, you had to, under the law of Moses, go and black their eye. What this law established is that if someone blacked your eye, if you really do want vengeance, if you're that way inclined and really do think that they ought to be punished, then the maximum that you could do is black their eye. So if they poke your eye out, you couldn't go and chop their legs off. You might feel like chopping their legs (laughs) off, but you couldn't do it. Can you see? It wasn't there to encourage retribution, it was there to ensure that the punishment fitted the crime. Can you see? Because isn't it easy, someone does you wrong, Alright? And you get the ump about it. Now, when we get offended when someone's done us wrong, what's the first thing we want to do? We want to do even more wrong to them than they've done to us. That's really weird when you think about it, isn't it? There you are, you've got the ump that someone has done you wrong. How dare they do you wrong? So you want to go and do more wrong to them than they've done to you. But there you are, condemning them because they've done wrong to you. See? It was there. As I say, not to encourage retribution or vengeance. Vengeance is mindset for the Lord. It was to limit punishment, as simple as that. And when it worked properly, it worked well. Um, Chapter 20, Moses outlines Israel's code of warfare. Remember, they were about to go into the Promised Land, and, and like any nation, they got involved in wars. They attacked, they had to defend themselves, and, and in fact, with the Canaanites, they had to actually go and destroy them all. So they were the offensive, um, you know, sort of party, if you like. And in chapter 20, you get Israel's Geneva Convention, their rules for warfare. And um, the first one is that, you know, that Moses tells them they're to be fearless, because a fearless army is a lot harder to beat than a fearful army. Um, Owners of new houses or vineyards were to be excused military service, so once you were 20, you could be drafted, you know, I mean, it, like if there was a battle, you could be called up, however, if, if you just bought a new house, or if you just planted a new vineyard, then you wouldn't be drafted, you know, you'd be excused that battle, because you were given time to enjoy your house you were given time to enjoy the fruit of your vineyard. The idea being, if someone has just moved into a house or just planted a vineyard, then they get called for military service, their mind's going to be back home, isn't it? So they're, they're going to be no good as soldiers. So, you know, you get all these these reasons that people could be excused temporarily from fighting in the army. Um, that those who are awaiting marriage, you know, sort of like, you know, about to get married or just got married, they were excused and that. Um, you know, I mean, for obvious reasons. I mean, you just got married, and, and then, you know, a week into your wedding, you got to go and fight a battle. Your mind is not going to be on the warfare. It's going to be on the honeymoon, you know. And, I mean, they, they were very aware of that, so you were excused if you were about to get married, or if you were a uh, newlywed. Um, al- also, before a battle, um, any who were particularly, you know, like, particularly frightened, um, or, or kind of cowardly, were excused. So, so blatant cowards, or, or people who were so petrified, they go, oh, the older sawed up. They got sent home. Um, and the reason for that is so they didn't spread their fear to other people. Because if you have got a coward in the camp, it's, it's, it's the coward who spreads. Courage doesn't spread to cowards. Cowardice spreads from cowards to people who are broke. You know, if you've got people, oh, we haven't got a chance, all right, well, you, you, the, the Satan can then work on you. This is when the spies came back from Canaan. They painted such a bleak picture of it, that the people said, oh no, we can't go in. Had the people listened to Joshua and Caleb, rather than the ten who were unfaithful, they'd have gone in. And, and so, you know, all, you know, the negative spreads. So the particularly fearful and cowardly, uh, you, know, were, you know, were sent home so that they didn't contaminate um, everyone else. And uh, when, when Israel faced a battle with non-Canaanite nations, they were to always offer peace terms first. Now, with the Canaanite nations, they had their instructions, no peace terms, they were to go in and wipe them out. But whenever Israel ended up facing a skirmish with non-Canaanite Gentile nations, then Israel was to always offer peace terms first. The ideal was peace. If the peace terms weren't accepted, well, okay, you had to fight the war. But Israel was to always offer terms of peace first. And then also, when, when laying siege to a city, which was a part of warfare... You know, you know, like cities were walled; you couldn't get in. And so you had to sit outside and lay siege to them until their provisions ran out. Now, any time Israel was besieging a city in that situation, they were forbidden to cut down fruit trees. So, you know, the Greens would like that. You know, it's good, that. A little bit of the old nature there, I like that. They weren't to cut down the, you know, the fruit tree, because they, they cut trees down to make the siege works, you know, like scaffolding to climb up. Israel weren't allowed to do that. So, you know, you've got a real, real kind of, like, you know, countryside policy there, which, which which is good. And, um, right, chapter 21, uh, let's see, yes, yes, tw- chapter 21, yes, the problem of unsolved murders, i.e., a corpse is discovered, right, you know, sort of found lying there with a spear in his back or something, you know, out somewhere. What do you do about that? There's no way of finding out who killed him, there's no witnesses, you just find this murdered body somewhere. Now. That murder unsolved, I mean, obviously, if you solved the murder, it was atoned for by the death of the murderer. But, uh, you know, where you couldn't find out who'd done it, uh, then um, what, what happened then is that the, the, the atonement was to be taken care of by the town nearest to the body. So whichever town the body was nearest, they had to atone for it, and there were special sacrifices, blah, blah, blah. So they had to sort that out. Um, then, then permission is, 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 is given um, for them to marry the women of defeated nations, all right? So, if they've been in a war and defeat a nation, all right, they were allowed to marry the widows of the soldiers that they, they, they killed. And uh, also, that, that should they do this, that the women were not in any way to be oppressed or treated as slaves. They were to be well looked after. So the point is that very often, in a battle, they would wipe out the entire, all, all the men. They, you know, they'd wipe them out completely. Now this would leave many, many women and children completely unfe- uncared for, what well, the policy was that they were free to marry them, and they were to look after them well. So, so, so you get that there. Uh, then you get the rights of the firstborn son outlined, that you gets a double share of the um, inheritance. And, um, yeah, it's all, you know, I mean, Jesus was, was like the firstborn, and we're the firstborn, and, you know, you get all that. Um, then, kind of in contradistinction to the rights of the firstborn, you get what happens to rebellious sons. So, you know, so these are, 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 are male sons, you know, like, like y- you know, youngsters, probably in their teenage, who are particularly rebellious, i.e. that their parents cannot control them in any way at all. These kids are completely unresponsive to discipline of any kind. They are to be taken to the elders of the city by their parents and stoned to death. Now, we're not talking about little kiddies here, but these are sort of like, you know, your teenage yobbos? Well, that's what happened to them, you know, under the law. They they were beyond, because the point was, they were beyond any, see? So, in a situation like that, when you had, in effect, just a hardened criminal who was totally, gave no response, no thought to the law, to the rights and the benefits of other people, they were actually stoned to death. The reason being is that people like that end up doing so much damage that in Israel, they were taken care of before other innocent people died at their hands, which is ultimately what always happens. So that's what happens to them. Just, just, just to remind all you parents that we're under the New Covenant, not the Old Covenant. So, uh, Gary, I know Adam plays up at times, but don't bring him to me so we've got to stone him to death, for heaven's sake. We're in the New Covenant. And then also what, what's put here, uh, you know, in here is that when, when someone has been put to death for a capital crime, i.e., they've been you know, sort of, put to death because they've murdered, or something, uh, that, that their body was to be hung on a tree in full public view until sunset, and then it was to be buried. So the point is that they'd be put to death maybe in the morning, and their body would be hung on a tree. And, of course, this, this was kind of... this was saying, this is what happens if you murder, if you blah, blah, blah. It was kind of like... I mean, capital punish wasn't deterrent. It was to, pre- it was to prever- preserve the sanctity of the life that had been wrongfully taken. But nevertheless, there was a deterrent effect in this practice. And, of course, it says something about the fact that Jesus was hung on a tree, wasn't he? Because the Romans crucified you on a bit of wood on a tree. Jesus hung on the tree. And, you know, so Jesus took the place of someone who had suffered a capital, you know, um, offence. So he did that for us, obviously. The soul that sins it shall die, but he hadn't died. Right, okay, chapter 22. Uh, you, you get laws here, on ret- if you find an ox or something that you've got to find out who it belongs to and return it. Uh, you get a bit on cross-sexual dressing. Uh, right, I'll put that in more, right, okay, dressing up as women and, and women dressing up as men, that's what that means. Um, the non-abuse of nesting birds. You weren't allowed to interfere with birds when they were nesting. <laughs> Giggling from the corner there. I'm, I'm talking... <laughs> so, so, you know, because otherwise, you know, sort of like, you know, you know the, the, the bird's life and, and mating habits can be totally thrown out. So, again, you've got, you know, the old nature bit there again. So, I mean, you know, a bit, bit of the old Green Party here, no, no problem at all. Um, then, then you get safety regulations regarding the design of uh, houses. Yeah, you know, like for you know the houses have flat roofs, so you could you know sort of go up on your roof and sunbathe, and, you know, and walk around. They had to have ledges so, so high up so that you couldn't walk off. You know, I mean, so you know, there you got like town planning and you know planning permission stuff like that. So it's all very kind of um, you know sort of like comprehensive. This and then you get various things about marriage violations and what constitutes a violated marriage, blah blah blah. Now then, uh, in chapter twenty three, you get a list of people who were to be excluded from corporate worship. Now, this went as diverse as from Ammonites on the one hand to people, men who had had crushed testicles on the other. So again, it was very, very comprehensive and and the the list of those who were to be excluded um, from from worship. Then you get sanitation laws. Um, If you want, that's, that's, that's all to do with digging holes in the desert, that one. I'm not going to go into it. Um, (laughs) Then, (laughs) okay. Um, Then you get the the laws of of asylum for foreign slaves, like like so, foreigners who have come and seeking political asylum. Um, You get sort of like, you know, what you do about prostitution, you get laws about money-lending, rules for making vows, uh, what you can and can't do on someone else's property. I mean, it's like, for instance, if you're walking in someone's vineyard, because, I mean, you, you couldn't be thrown off of someone's property, you were free to walk in anyone's vineyard in Israel. In a vineyard, you could pick grapes, you know, you could pick, walk along picking grapes and eating them, but you couldn't pick a bunch i.e. you could eat as you were in there, but you couldn't, like, load up the bag and go home. That, you know, that would be theft. But, of course, it did mean that someone who was poor, who was hungry, could wander into your vineyard and eat his fill. But he couldn't go in there with a wheelbarrow and then off down to the market. <laughs> you know, all or, or, or that sort of thing. Um, right, okay, chapter, chapter 24, you get laws concerning Divorce. Um, you know, sort of like what, what constitutes divorce. Uh, the, the principle that, that in your first year of marriage you're excused from the, uh, you know, from the army, so we saw earlier if you're about to get married and, and now it specifies if, if, you know, after you've been married a year, for a year, you know, no military service. Um, no essential piece of equipment was to be taken as security for a debt. So, the point being, if someone owed you money, alright, until they paid the money, you could take something of theirs, all right? You know, say, right, well, I mean, if you, you know, you've got a spare coat, I'll have your coat, also, and you held that as security. But the point was you couldn't hold anything that was um, kind of an essential piece of equipment. So, for instance, say someone um, owes you money, and they were miller, so they had a, a, a millstone that ground up the grain, well, that's how they make their money. You couldn't say, right, well, I have your millstone and I'll hold that as security for the debt. Because then you're, you know, you're robbing him of his means to earn enough money to pay you back. Mm. So that prevented people ending up, not just becoming bankrupt, but losing everything. If you see what I mean, there were no bailiffs. There were no. You could never have everything you had taken away. Um, kidnapping is here uh, listed as a capital offence. Um, various things about leprosy, um, kind of, and. Then it goes back to loans and pledges and the fact that it was forbidden under the law to enter a man's house and take anything even if he owed you money so there were no bailiffs i mean your next door neighbor could owe you all the money in the world you can't go into his house and take his furniture or anything like that okay um and also if you ended up with his a blanket if, if all he had to give you for security was a blanket then you could hold that during the day, but at night you had to give it back to him so he could sleep in it and stay warm. So, again, you know, so the real, real fairness here. Real, real fairness. Um, workers were to be paid daily. All right? So days work for days pay because they needed it. So no exploitation of workers in any way at all, even immigrant labour. So the rules for labour in Israel applied to immigrant labour as well. See? So, so you never ended up with a, a, a black... Labour force, or anything like that at all. It was all, all kind of white economy through and through. Um, and immigrants and orphans to receive justice at all times. No one was to be exploited in any way. And uh, gleanings left from the harvest, i.e. when you've harvested your field, you could only harvest it once. You went through it once, picking everything that you needed. All the gleanings that were left on the floor, you couldn't go back and pick them up. The poor went and picked them up. So the point is those who had fields, they brought the harvest in, but a lot of it is left on the floor. Well the poor who didn't have you know harvest in their fields, they could go in and take it home, blah blah blah. And uh, you know, sort of like and, and, and the poor were defined as the alien because they had no land of their own, or widows and orphans, anyone who couldn't fend for themselves had to be looked after by other people. Uh, chapter 25, the establishment of courts, he, he goes over that. Um, the punishment was to always fit the crime. Flogging was limited to 40 lashes. Now, you mustn't think of their flogging being like, you know, you see it in the films with the Romans, it, it, you know, it wasn't like that. It, w- it was 40 of the best. I mean, it wasn't very nice, but it wasn't this thing where people's backs are lashed to bits and they, they virtually die after 10. It wasn't like that but they did have corporal punishment even for adults and that. Uh, the ox wasn't to be muzzled while it treaded the grains. Um, you have the duties of the brother's 20 widows in their families. So if you had a brother and uh, he died, well, you've got duties towards his widow because who's going to look after her, you see? So everyone is looked after. Uh, you get the thing about honest weights and measures, you know, it was a crime, in. you know, sort of like if you weighed out, you know, sort of so many pounds of, 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 of whatever, it had to be so many pounds. No dishonesty in trading. And um, in chapter 26, he deals with tithes and stuff like that. Um, Chapters 27 and 28, he goes back to the thing um, about uh, this Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, the blessing and the cursing on the mountains, and, and he, he goes back and gives them details how they're to do that. Now, in chapter 29 and 30, you now get his third discourse. So now he's kind of summing up. So this is, uh, you know, like talk number three. And um, in, in in chapters 29 and 30, he just runs over their history since they left uh, Egypt and, uh, you know, and sort of outlines the principle that if they're obedient, they'll be blessed, if they're disobedient, they'll be um, cursed. Chapters 31 and 32, uh, Moses now hands over officially to Joshua, and he then wrote out the entire law, so that was when he wrote the Pentateuch, Moses wrote the whole thing out and he gave it to the Levites and instructed them to read it to the people yearly at the various festivals, all right? And um, Moses and, the Joshua, and, and Joshua, they go into the tabernacle together at this point, and um, God, God speaks to Moses and tells him various things about Israel's f- future and how they were going to rebel and stuff like that, and, 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 and gives him a song that he and Joshua have to recite to the people, and this song is all about their future rebellion, and so they, they do that and uh, then God blesses Joshua as the one who's going to succeed Moses and tells him to be strong and courageous blah 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 and uh, then they come out of the tabernacle and they recite this song to Israel about all the future rebellion that they're going to be doing blah 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 and uh, then uh, then God tells Moses to go up into Mount Nebo which he does and from Mount Nebo he can see the promised land from the top of the mountain and there um, that's that's when he's going to die. He knows that that is where he's going to die. And uh, in chapter 33, before he leaves, I mean, God tells him in chapter 32 to go to Nebo, before he leaves, in chapter 33, he pronounces a blessing on each tribe in Israel, uh, except, for some reason, that I just can't work out, except Simeon. Don't ask me why, but but Moses, he pronounces a blessing on every tribe, but he doesn't mention anything about Simeon. And so then, chapter 34, he travels to Mount Nebo, and uh, he dies there, and the Lord buries him, and uh, he he was 120 years old. And uh, Israel grieves for 30 days. Uh, Joshua takes over the leadership. And, of course, remember, you know, Moses did get into the land eventually at the Transfiguration. And, uh, of course, um, in the Great Tribulation, he's one of the two witnesses, him and Elijah. And, of course, bear in mind as well, we know from Jude, that in actual fact, after he was dead here and God buried him, he was actually raised from the dead and, 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 and actually you know, went to heaven having been raised from the dead, and, and he's there now, physically. And uh, so, there, there you have it, the Pentateuch, what what, what we, you know, the first five books um, in the Bible known collectively as the Law. Genesis took us from creation to the beginning of Israel as a nation, you know, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, um, and you remember they ended up in Egypt where Joseph was Pharaoh's number two, and, uh, and then um, 400 years later, you get Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and they cover, in effect, the period of Moses' life, 120 years. And, uh, you know, and of course, you've got the wilderness wanderings, you've got the giving of the law, the sacrificial system, the tabernacle, blah, blah, blah. And um, so here we've got you know, Moses' death and the commissioning of Joshua, and next time, when we go on to Joshua, we see him leading Israel into the actual... Um, promised Land, and uh, so let's 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 just remind ourselves of of, of dates here. All, all, all right, um, Israel is now on the eve of actually moving into the Promised Land. All right, now God had promised Abraham six hundred years earlier that this was going to happen. Now they're about to do it. The date is fourteen hundred BC. So Genesis covered the first two thousand years or so of history. Then you get a gap of 400 years between Genesis and Exodus, and then Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy cover another 120 years. So that, that totes up that the, you know, work it all out, and the date is now, with Joshua about to lead Israel into the promised land, the date is now 1400 BC. And uh, we will pick up on that, Joshua and the conquest of Canaan next time.